0: depri.com is proud to present top eight magic podcast with Michael J Flores and Brian David Marshall
1: brought to your ears thanks to face-to-face games.com hey everybody Brian Marshall here with Michael J Flores uh, if you're listening stay tuned after our segment I did a, a bonus segment again uh, I think the Gavin one eventually went up
0: hey I, I listened to it I, okay yeah.
1: Uh, and then uh, I talked to Zvi Moschowitz again, and we were hanging out uh, earlier this afternoon and we were looking at all the decks from Mythic Championship 3 that were posted on the Wizards website and what different people were playing. And so we just started talking about those a little bit. So if you want to hear Zvi talk about some of these decks, some of the ones he found interesting, and how he would approach building sideboards in an open deck list tournament, he had a couple quibbles with some of the choices people made. Based on the fact that it was open deck list, it was, it was a really interesting
0: conversation. I think if you're doing open deck lists, you want to have a lot of one ofs. Um, that's, what,
1: that's what Z was saying yeah. as well, by
0: the way. You want to have a lot of one ofs, and the reason is, um, like, if your deck, if decks are open, they're by nature more predictable, right? So the only way that you get any amount of random disadvantages by playing a lot of one ofs, like not even two ofs, I mean, like a lot of one ofs, and um, you know, like a lot of the cards are close enough in power level that that's okay you know what's so much better an Ashiok a Narset or a Teferi right like the Teferi's maybe the best one Teferi,
1: Narset, Ashiok I have a very clear pick order
0: you think Teferi, Narset, Ashiok yes well what if you're playing is it Phoenix well, <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm right? saying
1: that's what sideboards are for. I might have more there.
0: No, I'm just saying, right, like, they're... But it's at least arguable, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, if you're playing mono-red, clearly Narset is the worst yeah. for you, right? And Asiok is, like, a non-card, right? But if you're playing... If you're playing oh, is it Phoenix, God. Teferi is a distant third, right? right? Like, Narset is insane, and uh, Asiok might be better, right? It, It's crazy, you know, so... I'm just saying, like amongst those, or like imagine you're playing like Jeskai Planeswalkers, like Jeskai Planeswalkers. Some of these maniacs play like one copy of Teferi Five, right? Because they they have to run life on hard mode. They, <laughs> you know, like I mean, God bless them. They have like four Sarkins, but like, you know, you know, is it really the case that Sarkin is so dramatically better than Teferi on five that you would play like? four and zero or four and one because that's what those Chess Guy Maniacs do, you know? And I'm not not—I'm not even sure that that's wrong, right? But they're clearly not so disparate in power level that it's insane to play another Teferi. Yeah? I mean, I, I agree with you. So I think if you're playing open deck formats, you just got to play like a lot of one-offs because that like forces your opponent to use brain cells when they wouldn't otherwise. Spoiler, part of the conversation with V is
1: V was surprised by how few of the Esper decks, and it's like 38% of the field is Asper, are running any copies of Thief of Sanity in their board. And he was like, you have to at least run one for basically
0: the reason you're saying, right? So um, one of the big... One of the big challenges if you're playing like exactly. blue red or mono red is if you're playing against a Demir deck of some sort, whether it's Grixis, straight up Demir, Esper, if there's some other Demir I get, yeah, like maybe even Soltai, is that if you know that they don't have Thief of Sanity, you could just side out all your <laughs> shocks, right? Like, I mean, like the biggest problem I ever had when I was playing Drakes, so because I was playing Drakes for a long time in standard. Is like sometimes I just like assume my opponent didn't have any creatures because I won game one, and then like I'm like oh crap, I have to, I have to do like the hard way on discovery dispersal or something like that, you know, or like so, I have like two lava coils in my deck to deal with a you know potential forecasting costs bolus, and like now I have to throw it at a thief because I'm gonna lose to the thief if it hits me <laughs> once, right? Or like maybe I don't have an answer at all, you know, or like I'm just like Drake on D, you know. <laughs> whatever it is to try to not get hit by that thing even once so uh yeah i do i mean I, I understand why people have largely cut their thieves but i'm in this v camp i think you need to you need to make them respect there were
1: three there were three and it was all all the, basically the same list playing it so it's kind of interesting to see if those guys uh if their if their version will do well but
0: well, so I, right, I, ask I you haven't something. seen the deck list yet. I assume that the Esper decks and the Esper Hero decks in particular are playing like one or more copies of the Elder Spell in main deck and they've got more on the sideboard. There's some, some mix of them. Yeah, so I feel like Elder Spell is like, that's like a gamble, right? Like, you know, they might have like three Planeswalkers to play and then you win the lottery, especially if you have like any Planeswalker with an ultimate, right? right. Like, the real ultimate is, is ballless, right? But anybody The real with an
1: ultimate, ultimate is the friends we made along the way, Mike.
0: You don't make a lot of friends when you cast the Elder Spell. In fact, you make a lot of enemies. But luckily. Well, that's why
1: those friendships are so special. Yeah.
0: It doesn't last real long. All right, so you had a question, a real question.
1: Well, it's, it's not really a real question. So we're, we're at the mall, basically, right? We're yeah. just hanging out at the mall right now. And there's like this amphitheater stair area. It's yeah. like, it's stairs, but it's like shaped like an amphitheater. And I'm like, have we made some sort of fundamental error in terms of where we chose to sit on the stairs to do this so we we chose to sit at one end along the railing which feels like it's out of the way but i i feel like we're disrupting people's programming
0: oh i thought like we're overlooking a Katori birch right now i thought you were asking like maybe we should be overlooking a Victoria's secret no no, oh, okay. no. yeah i don't know nor do i care
1: no don't care. You don't, you don't do, like, uh, you don't have, like, any kind of, like, urinal protocols for which urinal you use when you go know. into a suite of
0: urinals? I mean, there's actually a Maxim magazine article about urinal protocol, but it's mostly about not being perceived as gay. So that doesn't bother me at all, right, because right. I don't care in that context. Um, so... Uh, in this case, like, you know, I was just across the hall by Pratt, and the amount of time it took me to get here because of the the congestion of tourists is such that I can't possibly care. <laughs> okay. Like, I live in New York City. There are a bunch of people who have something less productive than doing a Canadian Magic the Gathering podcast on the <laughs> stairs that are interrupting my day. That's, that's my answer.
1: I got freaking drenched. Like... You know, how, look how soaked I am! How far do you think I had to walk to get this wet?
0: Did you take the train? I didn't. I walked here. Oh well, I know how far you walked then. No,
1: nope, nope, nope. I was at the Shake Shack when it started raining. You're kidding! It was literally just crossing the street. A block. from not even a block. Okay. It was like
0: fifty feet. Oh, because you could you go from a covered area to another covered yeah. area. Wow. But it was
1: just torrential.
0: I'm sorry. I'm sorry to hear that.
1: And and I literally left like you know like when you play a video game and there's like an ammo drop or something like or, or some kind of like a food store like gauntlet you're playing gauntlet oh, and, you're like, oh, and you need more food warrior
0: needs food, more you
1: need food i was literally Elf
0: is in, about to die
1: i was literally in a room full of umbrellas when i left for here yeah. i was literally in a room full of umbrellas and i d- i didn't take one
0: i'm sure that our canadian listener is really just so overjoyed that you made the trek
1: I, well, I am. I'm happy to be here.
0: They're very appreciative.
1: So, so what else is going on, Mike? What, what are, are we talking about this week? At least three important
0: things we can talk about. Is
1: one of them rotting Regisar? <laughs> uh,
0: we could talk about that, but it sounds like you have the Magic: of The Gathering down cold with a Hall of Fame Pro Tour champion. I have other more important things. Okay. Number one, my X Men poll. <laughs> <laughs> People are GD monsters. Kitty Pride came in last. Did she, did she get any votes? She did. She did. So at the point that I sent Brian like a screenshot of the X-Men poll that I put up, Kitty had no votes, right? And I'm like, what kind of monsters are these? So clearly Kitty Pride is the correct vote.
1: Although I, I so I feel So I feel like given our our audience yeah. and our contemporaries or your contemporaries and some of my pre-contemporaries yeah. um, that you really needed to put a Jim Lee era
0: x-men option maybe a jubilee instead of kitty pride if i were going to put a jim lee option i would clearly put the Quanon version of psylocke right like who i, I would have voted for over kitty <laughs> had she been an option no one cared about her when she was a british supermodel but make her a half-naked japanese ninja and she sells a lot of i mean jim lee doing whatever jim lee's gonna do yeah. he's gonna sell a lot of batman comics uh, he never did right with uh, Divine Right, that Faraday comic he did himself at, at Homage Comics, but most of his stuff sells real good, you know, yeah. hush. Um, so the options were, an orig- you voted for, like, an original because you thought, like, Gene the best, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, Gene Gray, I mean, it's Gene Gray or Kitty Prime for me.
0: Yeah, so it's, the originals are obviously, like, Gene, Hank, Bobby Drake, Scott Scott Summers, come on! And Warren Worthington the Third. I would vote for Warren Worthington III over, over Scott Summers. Just because you
1: think he's worth World uncle?
0: <laughs> I used to call Worth uh, Worthless Wallingford, right? Because <laughs> that was because, like, somebody got his name wrong in a tournament report, like, back in the Usenet days, so I thought it was hilarious. Uh, no, um, I like I the original Angel. Yeah. I mean, I like the power levels of the original X-Men, like, before they all came, like, crazy overpowered. Like, Angel, what's your power? I fly at, like, a medium speed. <laughs> <laughs> it's like no North Star, you know? How quickly do you get there? As the angel flies. You know. like I, I, dude, what do you do? Like I, in the early X-Men comics, I carried a bazooka. <laughs> you know? <laughs> fight Magneto out of bazooka. Yeah,
1: the X-Men are kind of odd of you. Beast, you know. Beast, what's your what's your powers? I am quite good
0: on, like, an aerial act. No, no, no. Yeah, he's just, like, very clearly, like, an, a well-above-average... Trapeze artist, collegiate football player, right? Like with no shoes. Leather. Ha- leather yeah, helmet. Yeah, yeah. he's exactly like a, a '60s era collegiate football player with no shoes. He could he could tumble, you know. Yeah, yeah. He could probably make his way, you know, to uh, you know the the high school regional championships in gymnastics. You are saying he's like Robin meets Batroc the Leaper? No, he's stronger than that, oh. right? He's He's, he's not as strong as a gorilla, maybe, but he's, he's getting there. You know, he's, they were young. They were young. Jean was not like an Omega-level telepath. She was mostly a girl in a miniskirt, you know. You could move objects like a fork, <laughs> maybe a, a stack of school books, an apple or a baseball with her mind, and then maybe throw one of those apples or baseballs at Magneto, you know, who unfortunately had a metal helmet on. But like, that was about the power level of the original X-Men. And so, yeah, I kind of like it. I don't fault someone for, for voting for a giant size X-Men. giant size X-Men really is the iconic X-Men. That's your Nightcrawler, so, your sir, Logan, your Storm. Logan and Storm are both outstanding So it choices. might be
1: crazy to people, but, like, so for, for, like, as long as most of our listeners have been alive, yeah. X-Men's been, like... The giant size the, X-Men. The, the number one, right? Like, and if it's not the number one, it's just, like, only because... Marvel well, in the was last
0: ten years, yeah. right. Because Marvel has deliberately ghettoed the X Men in the last ten years in favor of the Avengers, um, because they didn't own the movie rights until right. now, right? But, so, but I mean, look for that to be reversed quickly. The yeah. X Men were wildly more popular than the Avengers. So,
1: like, the X Men's like comes out right around the same time as like FF and the Fantastic Four. I mean, the no, Fantastic was, Four and and, and Spider the- slightly after, but it's that same era yeah. of the.
0: You know, early to mid '60s. How could Stan? I, I don't have a problem with Stanley writing everything, but how could Kirby draw every one of these comics? So, so Ditko drew Spider-Man, right? But Kirby drew all of the Incredible Hulk, the Fantastic Four, and the X-Men originally. Right. Right. And he, I think he did some Thor also, right? He did Journey into Mystery. Yeah. I don't. Under, I can't. Well, really I mean, do it all. He would.
1: He would do pretty loose layouts, and then things would be like finished.
0: Like Joe or someone yeah, would finish it.
1: If you ever want to like speak ill of the dead. If you just want to speak ill of the Dead, read Jack Kirby's run on Mr. Miracle, and you'll be shaking your fist at Vinnie Coletta's ghost.
0: Who's Vinnie Coletta? He was the
1: anchor oh, on his anchor on Mr. Miracle. So in some it's,
0: context, I asked Brian a question on, on So Big Twits, and this is how it came up. So, so you're saying Coletta ruined a perfectly ingenious piece of work?
1: I mean, I have no idea if it's a perfectly ingenious... I think he, he erased more than he inked.
0: Ah. Uh. Yeah.
1: But yeah, Kit Kirby was pretty prolific. He would just like throw all the stuff on a page, and then someone would go in and finish it, whether it was Jolton Joe Senate or yeah. you know
0: so, vicarious Vinnie Coletta. So I said I said, did you like an original the best? you like a, a giant size X Men the best? Kitty Pride is the only person who got her own damn category and then other. Right. Other finished slightly ahead of Kitty Pride and you were and then that prompted you to have your much better Twitter poll about <laughs> What's the, what's the worst, superfluous, you know? See more. I voted for see more. Yeah. See results, sorry. See
1: results, yeah. We was see results, other, all of the above, none of the above. Yeah, I mean, so, but I, I feel like. There How been, many people voted for see results, but just wanted to see the results? Oh, I
0: and didn't know. realize what they were doing? No, no, I voted for see results because I voted for see results. I knew what I. I mean, granted, we had had the conversation before <laughs> the poll, poll went up. But, you know, I, I, I feel strongly about that. See results is the worst. It's yeah. so non-committal, yeah. you noncommittal. Know? But in my case, I mean, like, say you wanted to vote for a Gambit. Gambit's not a giant-sized X-Men. He's not an original. You can only put four options. He's an image-era X-Men.
1: I consider that image-era. I know that that's not an accurate he's, he's, accounting...
0: He's a Silvestri, right? Yeah. I feel like, yeah, he is a Silvestri... I mean, but you're... By definition, you're two years before the image-era.
1: Sure, but, it, but it's, I, it's... I know what you mean. It, it, it's like the... The era where the X-Men gets revolutionized. The like, coloring suddenly starts. They start getting computer coloring no, 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 on the X-Men are, books. That's like
0: three years before computer coloring on the X-Men books. I, you're like, I don't know how to describe it. Well, they were
1: this. doing airbrushing on the X-Men books. That then
0: led them into getting computer coloring on the X-Men. I mean, well, they got computer coloring because Jim Lee had computer coloring, and they're like, we need to have parody. But they were all so bad at computer coloring. Like, a 1993 computer colored comic is garish. It's so hideous. Uh, but anyway, um, yeah, I don't think there's a good. I mean, like that's like they, a you, know the, you know, you know, they the
1: they really the reason they bought Malibu, which was the comic company I started, yeah. was because they had a colored computer. Got, com, they had a computer coloring department. Because
0: you guys computer colored Youngblood number one, right?
1: I, well, I was gone, but long by then. But,
0: but that company had computer yeah, colored Youngblood yeah, number yeah. one, right? So
1: there was a computer coloring. Division and they bought. They Marvel basically bought
0: Malibu for the computer color. So the thing that's abs- absurd to me is the Malibu comic book superhero universe was awesome. They did nothing with it. They just ruined it, right?
1: I don't think. I think it just con- conflicts with Marvel's universe. So,
0: but they were like, it, like a lot of people were thinking, like this was like what Valiant might have been if Shooter didn't leave, right? You know, that's kind of what people were thinking, and then Marvel just. I mean, I guess you had a Barry Windsor-Smith run on Rune, and that was about it. Like, I don't know. Like,
2: yeah. it's,
0: whatever. I don't want to criticize. They do such good work also. No, kind of the whole point of where I was coming from is like, I just, when I say everyone, I mean even myself, just shit talk the X-Men, you know? Like, X-Men suck. And the reality is, they put out a ridiculous proportion of terrible X-Men, anything. X-Men comics, X-Men video, whatever, are all bad but they're not because actually like 10% of the stuff they put out is A+. It's so good. And I, I was just like this is whack to me. Like I'm actually just rereading uh, Joss Whedon and uh, John Cassidy's run of Astonishing X-Men from like 12 years ago. It's fucking awesome. You know uh, X-Men Red which is done by Tom Taylor right now is really good. Uh, Wolverine and the X-Men by Jason Aaron is really good. And I was just like yeah there's a lot of good X-Men stuff. Um and you know, it's just it either just gets overshadowed, or also Hickman is coming onto the X Men now. Oh wow! Did you say so? I can't believe I got literally only one like on this tweet that I put out, but the like was from Jason Aaron. So, <laughs> so I'm like, All right, man. <laughs> Jason Aaron is so good. So here's the thing: Did J- you start the tweet with Jason Aaron? Did, was it
1: only he saw it?
0: No. So Hickman tweeted this tweeted a video it's an official marvel promo video about hickman becoming the writer on the x-men because hickman is like you know this mega star who did like all those avengers and fantastic four supercom you read his fantastic four yeah, so yeah, it's yeah, like it's great. it's unbelievable right like it, the last year like he did like 24 issues of fantastic four and ff in the last year he was on it just the last year almost like six of them could have been the uh, could have been the year that was on the downswing right so good so anyway, he, he, Marvel did an official promo video about the because Hickman's just been doing creator own stuff for however many years since he's been off Avengers, so it's like a big deal for him to come back and do corporate work. And so he's just making fun because like there's a segment and like Jason Aaron has to say something nice about him. And so I took a screen cap and Jason Aaron is wearing I don't know I don't know if you know who this is, but Finn Balor, Fergal Devitt is one of my favorite wrestlers. He's an Irish professional wrestler. Uh, wrestles in uh, World Wrestling Entertainment as Finn Balor. I
1: swear, there's magic coming up yeah. as soon as Mike and I are done talking.
0: Okay. Uh, but he's, like, but he's like super, like, inclusive and stuff, and he's wearing, like, the Gay Pride Finn Balor T-shirt. Oh, wow. So cool. it's, like, a rainbow of his logo. So I'm like, yo, Jason Aaron is wearing, like, a rainbow Gay Pride <laughs> Finn Balor T-shirt while giving props to my old sparring partner, uh, jonathan hickman on an official marvel x-men promo video this is like the coolest worlds collide ever i actually like wrote deleted and rewrote that thing because i didn't want it to make it seem like i was anywhere on the same stratosphere as hickman but i would point out he only finished one spot ahead of me in <laughs> comic book idol and that i actually beat him in week three i'm just you know yeah, right drawing though not writing he, we it wasn't a writing contest brian <laughs> Okay, it was a drawing contest. I'm saying they haven't let him draw any comics. No, no. <laughs> he has not drawn a comic in 12 years. But shit, he writes the hell out of them. Yeah. Uh, so they have, they've never let me write or draw a comic. So there you go. I only finished one spot behind the guy they don't let draw. Anyway, long story short, that's one thing. A second thing uh, pertains to uh, a podcast we had a few weeks oh, wait, ago. Wait,
1: hang on, hang on one second. Though. I want to just, while we're talking about that, so we were talking about X Men. So X Men One Forty One. I've talked about this, right? It's like a life changing comic for me. Uncanny X Men One Forty One. Days of Future Past. Yeah. Right. And so I remember, you know, I I'd, I'd read a lot of comics, stopped reading comics, and then found X Men One Forty One literally on a newsstand shelf. That's how it was. Right. Like, and that, and the the book just jumped out at me. The cover is very iconic. It's
0: like the one with um, the Wolverine, Wolverine with the wanda poster. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm like, and, I, and old kitty, right?
1: Yeah. And I'm like, I'm buying this comic. I read the comic. I was like, oh, my God. What happens? Because it's a two-parter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that, and it's that's, crazy
0: it's only a two-parter, right? right? And, and that's the that Brotherhood. Is that the first modern Brotherhood of Evil Mutants? Right? It has, like, Blob and Pyro in the present-day part of the story. I believe you. Yeah? Anyway.
1: Uh, so, anyway, so that gets me full bore back into comics. I start collecting. I go back. I buy a lot of X-Men. And so... And at some point, I would have sworn that even as much as a year later, New Teen Titans came out. That's Marv Wolfman George Perez. But it's so weird how your brain plays with time. New Teen Titans had already been out for, like, four issues by the time X-Men came out. And I guess I went back and, like, just tracked down all the back issues to read Titans.
0: So the thing was... Comics back then in the early 1980s wasn't like comics as it is right now, and so like that was like the big, that was like the big divide, right? It was like George Perez and Starfire against against um, uh, John Byrne and like I don't know, I guess White Queen or Black Queen, I don't know, somebody like the, Those were like the two. That was like the divide in comics. In a male gaze off. I mean, we're talking about the direct market in <laughs> the early <laughs> 1980s. We'll go with a yes here. Okay? I, mean, like, I think it's way better now from that perspective. Absolutely. But, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's so funny. So I, so I decided to reread the first four or five issues of Teen Titans. Yeah. They're not good. So this is the a conversation we had. right? I was just like, I think the Claremont Burn classic X-Men run holds up and I, I, I'm telling you, you're right, Mike. Yeah. And I found Wolfman to be completely unreadable from this era. Yeah. Right? Like, it's so many words.
1: Oh, it's not only so many words. It's just like the first issue is basically they just form a team because Raven tells them to. They're just like, we're a team now. Wow, we're really functioning well as a team. It, 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 it's just not very... is still
0: in the short pants at that point, right?
1: What? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's still, <laughs> he's still, he's still Robin.
0: No, he's in the short pants. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got like a chainmail brief. (laughs) Is that chainmail? Yeah. Like it looks scaly. Yeah, and it's it's weird. It's funny. Is it like sequins?
1: Is he running around in a sequin? Like like Aquaman shorts? (laughs) Yeah. You know what I mean? It has like it has some texture to it.
0: How they draw it.
1: I also like there's some point where he's running out to form the Teen Titans, and, like, Bruce Wayne is just sitting in a chair smoking a pipe with an ascot, and he's like, where are you going, Dick? smoking a pipe? Yes. I mean, maybe I'm
0: not remembering it exactly. I mean, I would believe you, but he he doesn't put... I would say he doesn't put poison into his body unless it's, like, a performance-enhancing drug, right? Like, he will shoot up venom. He definitely had an ascot on. (laughs) right. And, and like, a purple velvet jacket. So... uh, Brian Michael Bendis once told me that uh, every single picture that George – because he knew George Perez, right? So that every single picture George Perez had ever drawn was ripped out of a wrestling magazine. <laughs> so I'm just assuming that that month, like, there was a picture of Vince K. McMahon <laughs> smoking <laughs> a pipe. And that guy like, ah, looks like excellent photo reference for new Teen Titans number one. I don't, I don't think Perez
1: used a lot of reference.
0: Look, man. I I actually edited George Perez. All I'm telling you is what Brian Michael Bendis told me in a comic book counter in 1991. He said that George Perez, who I didn't know who that was because I only read Marvel, okay, at that point, uh, you know, ripped off every single picture he ever drew from a wrestling magazine. So I went and bought a lot of wrestling magazines, and I got to tell you, I did not end up with the comic career of George Perez. Second place to Jonathan Hickman. How could you? Third. Third, sorry. Patrick Sherberger finished first. Is he working now? Does he do stuff? No. No. No, I think he did a lot of Green Lantern and stuff for a while. Okay. But I think, like, all of us, like, had opportunities out of that, and I think he probably just got, like, a design job that paid, like, twice as much money and half as much work, right? Yes. Hickman was just like, oh, wow, I could just write comics instead. Comic book illustration is the gold pro of... uh Professional illustration careers. I mean, no insult to gold pros, but like it's more like the silver pro. <laughs> I mean, like you got to work real hard, it's a lot of hours. The thing is, like, and then you just have these editors who are like, draw it like this. I need more perspective on this. Do you have any idea how long it takes to dr- stop
1: tracing wrestling magazines?
0: Do you know how long it takes to do like one issue of a comic book? Like, I'm sorry, one page. Like eight hours to do pencils, right? Generally,
1: it's like a page a day is considered a a, a productive pace. Yeah, that's like insane
0: relative to what you get paid, right?
1: Rather than talk about how long it takes to make a single issue of a comic book, I'll uncomfortably change the subject. No, no,
0: wait, wait, wait. (laughs) Avengers Endgame is getting re-released in early July with post-credit scenes. Okay. Okay. Is it just post-credit scenes or just extra scenes? It's post-credit scenes. I mean, I think that they didn't specify how much additional footage there's going to be, but there will be post-credit scenes. Okay. And I believe that the word was scenes, not scene. So, like, I'm not sure if this is just a dickish move or if this was an ingenious move. Probably both. It can be both, right? Uh, But, like, Kevin Feige is just, like, he's explicitly stated he's taking Avatar's spot and he's never letting go. And I think that they probably had this in the works so that they could... Take Avatar's spot.
1: <laughs> I think they thought they might be able to get there without having to do this, yeah. but I mean, what are they like forty-six million short or something? It's, yeah, not, it's a not a lot. lot.
0: But he's gonna—it's gonna—he's gonna blow Avatar away by like one point five on that. Are you gonna go see it? Obviously. What kind of idiot do I look like? Are we gonna go see it and then podcast afterwards? I mean, what do, do you have know. to see it with the kids? It's like a four-hour movie. Speaking of a four-hour movie, at Movie Club last night, John Samuel Finkel—you may have heard of him played Watchmen. I've been talking
1: to him about this on Twitter today.
0: It did not end until 11. That is late for a movie club movie. I like to get home and go to the gym. It's closed by then. It's also not a very good movie. This one had extra scenes of like... it's not, Oh yes, the orcish songs
1: of Tales of the Black Freighter. <laughs> right? It's like the parts of Lord of the Rings that you skip.
0: Yeah, I mean when I first loaned my copy of Watchmen to like one of my friends and like school or college he just skipped all of the extra stuff in between issues yeah you're like superman and the superman and you know all that um but this actually made me think about something which was an interview i read with alan moore not that long ago i'd say recently but it's like probably in the last two or three months where he said that there were no good comic writers and people are like no no there's good comic writers alan and he's just like no there's not and they're like well, what's your evidence for this he's like if there were good comic writers, why are they still strip-mining my ideas from 20 years ago? And I thought about it, I'm like, the number one comic uh, DC is Doomsday Clock, which is really just Watchmen 4, you know? And I'm like, I guess I would be salty if I was Alan from that perspective.
1: I mean, Alan Moore did mostly recycle a lot of his ideas from other places as well.
0: Yeah, but they were like, I mean... To be fair, everybody's stealing archetypal ideas from other I'm things. Just, I'm
1: just saying, like, I mean, it's it's a really it's a really nice claim for him to make. But, like, let me, just say, let me let, just let say... Let him, let him be old. Let, let me let just say he read a lot of Stephen King.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and watched a lot of Outer, Outer Limits. Outer Limits, yeah. I was trying to explain the Outer Limits joke at the end of that movie to John, and he's just like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I'm like, there was an Outer Limits thing. He's just, he's just like can't just say that he stole the ending. I'm like, he said that he stole the ending. Anyway, new topic. So what were you going to say? You said I want to go back to an
1: old podcast from a couple weeks ago. Oh, back. I
0: was just going to say Avengers because that was an endgame right. ep- episode we did. All right, so what else is there that's interesting in life? Oh, okay. Um, so that three casting costs seven, six? Yeah, Rotting Regisar. All right, so here's the thing about that card. I guess you could play it on turn two with an elf or whatever, and you can mess somebody up, right? Like... Chances are you'll kill Aliantrazi if you do that. Okay? <laughs> well, you just cast it and be like, yeah, his card's all cost. You know no, no. Shahin Sarani for sure is losing to this, okay? You get him, you get him good, right? One duress later, he's he's not gonna be able to beat you. But that's not the reason why it's good. The reason why it's good is like you could cast like two of them like on turn five, right? And so like the turn that you're gonna cast like, normally and then you have like an enormous amount of power, and now you don't have any cards in hand anymore. Right, so you have no downside. You just cast whatever you draw. Just don't play any reactive cards in this deck. You know, like the most reactive thing you can have is like the Immortal Sun. Oh boo-hoo. Okay, like that I think is why it's so good. And I think this card is stupidly good. So that that seems to be the
1: the direction, right? There doesn't seem to be any ambivalence on this card. Yeah. Nobody has been like, this card's fine. Right? Like people have either been like, this card is garbage. They're gonna cast it down or do whatever to it as soon as you discard a card. Right, dies to Doomblade
0: which is bad because you get two cards out of it people said that Baneslayer Angel died to Doomblade and then Kibler and uh, and Coimber won consecutive Pro Tours <laughs> against Pad to Exile with it right like consecutive right I mean like that's like such an old way of thinking right like it dies to doomblade if you have doomblade as a good answer
1: right Ma- magic is not a game that you play heads up between two cards it's a game that you you sort of put things out and you give your opponent an opportunity to respond to them and you try to draw out their answers and you try to you know basically uh, constrain what they can do until ultimately you have one the last strikes right first stand.
0: of all if you're playing standard right now which is
1: tough to do if you're discarding a card time.
0: Even the decks with Doomblade, I would say Cast Down is the Doomblade analog and standard. Even decks with Cast Down only play like two, right. okay? You have players like Patrick Chapin who, when he played his um, Golgari deck at the Pro Tour, I can't remember if it was Gol- uh, Soul Tide, like two Pro Tours ago, yeah. he literally chose not to play Cast Down and he played uh, Crawl Harpooner instead because it's more of a clock against Wilderness Reclamation decks, which I thought was very, very smart. And he's just like, look, you can get a Terramander with it and it's better than having a Cast Down. You could usually trade with something like, um, uh, you know, a Tempest Gen, and then it's just a cast down. But then it's so much better when it's better, right? right? So, but so in that case, like you don't even have a cast down, and if you're playing against Demir and Demir adjacent decks, the likelihood is they don't even have a cast down because their cast down is a is a Tyrant Scorn. Okay, so like, I don't know. It's, this doesn't seem to me like. This is like such an obvious thing, especially when there's so many kinds of like dive down that people could be playing or like... I mean, I guess that a dive down isn't good if you're having to discard every turn, but you can also be in a situation where like discarding is valuable to you. Like maybe you have graveyard things or you have like madness things or, you know, maybe not in standard, but it's not, it's definitely not, this card sucks. I think this card is very pushed. The thing that's crazy to me is that new two-casting cost dinosaur that deals two combo with, like, the dinosaur that if it takes damage, you make a dinosaur? Sure. How does that even work? You make infinite dinosaurs. But you never stop, right? You never stop. So this breaks arena. It does. And there's no way to resolve an actual physical there's game in arena. I believe
1: there's already a way to do this with the card impact tremors. So this already exists.
0: So, like, I mean, I don't know how stupid this is, or are you just going to assume people don't do this to be cute? This is totally the kind of thing some asshole will do at FNM. Yeah.
1: I mean, at some point You I I, I don't even think you can choose a
0: number Right? No. It just keeps going It doesn't stop triggering.
1: I believe the game ends At some point, the game ends in a draw And you go on to the next game Right? You're like, there's nothing else We can do here. Okay, move on To the next game And you start over.
0: It's a a reset button I mean, don't they, they fix that? I mean, I don't know how that even gets through
1: development. I think it already exists in standard. But this is
0: a playable card. Well, so, that's the, okay. here's that's the that thing. That is like, a big difference. So, like, if you have, like, some. There's all kinds of stupid shit in magic that might happen. There was, like, a thread back on, like, rec.tradingcards.magic.casual or something 25 years ago. Dot Casual. You know, to, like, you know, uh, mana burn. Uh, while like, with a, like like timing tricks like city of brass and mana burn and then like using it so when you were going to take damage from the mana burn using like an alabaster potion to like change the damage but then that creates a stack opportunity to mana drain was so the whole point was like you could cr- do like a high mana drain with no spell right yeah, so yeah somebody can like invent a stupid situation right that's always been available in magic however uh, at like at interrupt speed like this right. is like how old the, the thing is but like this is going to be a playable car that's the uh, like that's clearly a playable car right right
1: yeah
0: I mean you I guess you don't play it next to Miyashino Pyromancer he's like not real good friends with that guy but he's fine with like Goblin Chain roller.
1: I'm looking for the I'm trying to remember the name of the car but
0: he's red he's mono red he's a red creature yeah. yeah
1: I don't know is that a is that yeah a... he is
0: there he is Marauding, marauding
1: raptor. raptor. So it's a 2-3 for 2, which is pretty good. Yeah. Uh, dinosaur Creature Spells, you ca- cast, cost one less. Yeah, that's cast, insane. Which is insane. And then whenever the creature enters the battlefield under your control, Marauding Raptor deals two damage to it. If a dinosaur is dealt damage this way, Marauding Raptor gets plus 2, plus 0 until end of turn. And it's pretty good. And so if you have a, pol- what is it, Poly Raptor? Is that the yeah. end of the card? Yeah. Um,
0: you just keep making infinite polygraphics. Or, if you have a... Is Thud, is that a... I was just going
1: to say, you could Thud.
0: Is that an instant? I imagine you had a Teferi and a Thud. For simplicity's sake. <laughs> you could just infinite them, then.
1: I'm assuming Thud's a sorcery, but...
0: It's... Yeah, it's, Yeah. Well, if you had a Thud, that was... it. Like, if you had a Teferi, a Thud...
1: And then a red dinosaur, and then a green dinosaur.
0: Infinity damages. Yeah. Can't be beat, probably. Yeah, because there's a Teferian play. Probably <laughs> The fact that there's a Teferian play is really what makes this combo. <laughs> yeah. Um, so.
1: Dungeon Geist is back.
0: Yeah, I own four copies of that. Remember, John made a top eight of her Pro Tour with it? I thought it might be good. It didn't end up being good. He did. This new blue Planeswalker looks all right.
1: Mu Yen Ling Sky Dancer. It's a one UU for a two loyalty Planeswalker. Plus two until next turn up to one target creature gets minus two minus zero and loses flying. So that's historically the minus two-ing of a creature's power has been pretty good on a Planeswalker.
0: You just want to get it. So that gets it from two to four and then minus three is a sweet ability.
1: Minus three you get a four four blue elemental bird with flying
0: just insane
1: yeah and then eight you get an emblem with islands you control have tap draw a card which is like I, you, do you feel like john has had dreams like that where just like his islands tap to draw a card
0: did you when you said john did you mean everyone
1: I, I mean no i mean there's some people who just dream about cough emblems
0: oh like peace ollie
1: yeah and you you're I much have, more of a cough emblem I guy at this point in your life in my life yeah but you would
0: I think I'm out of that phase now. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, I, I, feel, like, I feel like a small amount of success made me, um, like, strategically narrow for maybe longer than was healthy for me. So you're playing Hogak now? Well, I'm just saying in standard, like, this is, like, embarrassing. I think I went X and 1 in six consecutive FNMs slash standards showdowns. Like, I was just, like, like standard a lot, so I kept playing standard showdowns, like, on Saturdays. And like playing FMs. And then I went 0 2 in an FNM with mono red. And then I just played mono green last week and didn't lose a game. And I was just like, how much is this about me? How much of this is about me? How much of this is about my stubbornness? And how much of this is about the decks, right? Like, and I don't know. I really don't know. But I do know that I am overly biased towards red better than it probably is, even sure. when it's good. And that's not, that's not good. It means I'm mispricing my decisions. Sure. So I think, like, maybe, you know, knock some, knock some scales off my pipes. You know, maybe I'll do better in life. Like, I was a combo guy for a while. This is a funny story we're talking about. Um, Worlds, I think, 2010. Uh, do you remember when Dave Williams played my blue-green, my blue-green deck in Worlds 2010? the yeah. The Titan Titan uh, Genesis Wave deck? And so he's playing he's playing limited on day two, right? And I'm playing extended on moto, right? And I'm like, Dave, you have to play my extended deck. It's really good, right? So I I beat yellow hat in like in the finals of like multiple like extended queues, right? And he's just like, Mike, this is a really good deck. Like he's like, what do you call this? I'm like, blah blah. I'm like, I think that's really good. I'm like Dave, just play this deck. And like he's just like, look, man, Conley has a sweet black green deck, right? Right? Let me this tell you. This was so, the Necrotic Ooze deck, yeah, wasn't it? Deck. After this world, all I got was grief from Dave. He's like, You should have made me play the deck. I'm like, I don't know how many different ways I can tell you to play my deck. You chose not to play it. Do you know what my deck was? I mean, I do, but. Yeah. It was Splinter Twin. So. It was, it was, yeah. So there, it was literally Splinter Twin. Um, so the card, Deceiver Exarch, hadn't been printed yet. But the card Pestermite was legal in modern. I'm sorry, in extended. So I was just like, what if I just played like a control deck that could like win? You know, I had like creature lands or whatever, and like and like you know, uh, Cryptic Command and stuff. But like, you Add know, some lightning bolts and yeah, yeah. Snapcaster was legal at that point. I'm not sure if I don't remember the entire deck, but like I do remember. I remember I beat Yellow Hat on turn four, and he's just like what the hell is this deck? Because, like, in game one, I think I beat him with, like, Cruel Ultimatum. <laughs> like, and, and, something, like, crazy like that, yeah, right? Yeah. And then I beat him on turn four in game two, right? And he's just like, what is this deck, right? So anyway, long story short, like, no one believed in my Splinter Twin deck, but I, my vindication is six months later, I won that 5K with it. <laughs> and then they banned all the cards.
1: Yeah. All right, well, I've got, we've got more magic
0: discussion coming some, up after some this. Some magic discussion. Some
1: magic discussion coming up after this. Um, I think you and I should plan to go to the M20 pre-release. And, and then we should, live cast it? And we should, like, yeah, basically, or, or podcast it.
0: So that's the weekend of uh, Jan- of July 4th, right?
1: Is it July 4th weekend, or is it the weekend after?
0: So I the only reason I know is Kevin Ahn sent me, like, uh, his schedule. And I think they have, like, five pre-release tournaments starting on July 5th. Oh, okay. So...
1: I think I'm I think I'm back. I'm going away like before the 4th of July for a couple days. Yeah. But I think we should podcast it and then there's just always all these like curmudgeon-y old people that we know yeah. from Magic History that we should talk to and get their perspective and I think it'll just be fun.
0: So who who are you cheering for at this week's Mythic whatever it's called event?
1: <laughs> um I am uh, I always I'm always rooting for Autumn. I uh, feel a real connection to them after uh, the last Pro Tour that they won. Uh, rooting for Reed Duke. Oh, Reed. Uh, Reed's got a really sweet deck. He's playing eight nickel boluses and his deck is super sweet. Uh, um, you know, hard not to vote for Huey as well. You know, you're, not rooting for making Huey.
0: You're har- making it hard for me to keep supporting who I'm supporting.
1: But, you know, there's also, I mean, there's a ton of other people there. Like, like it's hard for me to not root for Wyatt Darby and Corey Burkhart, two, like, of the more exciting young players in the game. Uh, got a chance to hang out with Emma Handy a lot at the Invitational. I'm clearly rooting for her. Uh, you know, there's, there's, I mean, it's going to be hard to go wrong. There's, there's a ton of
0: talented people at this event. I'm rooting for Alexander Hain. And a a player, great choice. And a player you might have heard of from Germany. I think this kid might have something in him.
1: Oh, I'm rooting for a different German player.
0: Yeah, who are you rooting for?
1: I'm rooting for Simon Gertzen. Oh, come on. I mean, obviously, look, I'm rooting for Kai, but I'm really rooting for Simon. Like, who doesn't uh, want to see Simon and LSV get, like, a semifinals rematch? Uh,
0: well, Simon ruined LSV's run the last time. Yeah. And he didn't even have any removal in his deck. He was like Aaron Riley. <laughs> 28 lands, no removal. <laughs> That's not exactly true. He had the two minutes blast. <laughs> um, that, that, that deck is hilarious. Uh, anyway, long story short... I just declined a call from Roman Fusco. Oh. Yeah. Uh, long story short, uh, I'm, I'm rooting for Alexander Hain, who I think is doing wonderful work for the community right now. Uh, and Kai Buddha, because uh, I, I heard someone say, if you put the best player right now against the best player from 20 years ago, that the best player right now is probably just the best player of all time. And I think that whoever said that, might be, might be well to be put in their place. Who said that? It was actually Alex. <laughs> but he actually makes a point. He's just like, isn't the best player right now probably just the best player of all time?
1: Sure. I mean, this is an argument that goes on in most sports too, right? Like, is, is the peak basketball player from, you know, 30 years ago as good as the best basketball player it's, now? It's,
0: it's completely different. Like, you can look at LeBron James's abilities, how fast he runs, how, how impossible he is to physically guard, Right. And his skill set, and compare that to someone from twenty years ago. And like, Michael can do a lot of stuff, but the reality was he was like defended by chain smokers, or you know what I mean? Like, come on, he didn't have Draymond Green kicking him in the nuts every, you know, and not get you know fouls called when when he's driving to the basket. It's not the same thing. And separately, so I think is is there, a, is there a, had three Hall of Fame careers, two of which were after his Hall of Fame induction. It's insane to think that. I I love LSV. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying, like, the greatest player in the moment is not the greatest player of all time. We have some pretty great greatest players of all time candidates. And I think that it's only because of my friendship with John that I never really, like, recognized how much better Kai was than almost everybody else, possibly including John. But I would never admit that out loud. (laughs) Ever.
1: It would be absolutely insane to see Kai making a deep run playing on Sunday especially um, I mean I just I mean, I'm fine with both him and Simon making top 4 so
0: I, I put a I put like a just an open-ended tweet out this week cuz I, I to do some research for myself and I, I obviously I have like a biased results set cuz it's my followers right but I got a lot of responses and a lot of more like real heartfelt I and mean, you were tagging some of them it was like you know what were like the great moments in pro tour coverage right really so and the, the reason I wanted to some one, people just say like when there was pro tour coverage no, I mean like I was in a lot of them. Randy was in a lot of them. Hacker was in some was in one of them, right? Yeah. But like it's like you know, I, I really love my Kenji against Ruel call. Sixteen thousand dollars lightning helix is a classic, right? I I, I put sixteen thousand dollars lightning helix behind the double bluff, uh, but I think like I don't know. I, I think like I don't know how many are better than the Force Spike is so good, right? And it's and I think like. If I were to identify the great moments in coverage, almost every single one of them that I would recognize involve at least one Hall of Fame player. But they don't have to actually have to win. Sure. Right? So, like, John not blo- I mean, granted, he's against another Hall of Famer, right? But, like, John not blocking the wolf or Bob paying wrong on his processor are both important moments. Like, Bob plowing the treetop village is unreal, okay? But, like... And, I'm, and the reason I'm trying to, to discern this is, like, there's been so much conversation recently about like where did OP go wrong? Where did coverage go wrong? And I think I know at least part of the answer. Historically one of the things that made Magic special is you take the great players and let them play real well and then you have someone who might not be the greatest player but understands the game well enough. Hopefully is probably like even like a bottom to middling Pro Tour caliber player and is really good at communicating simple ideas to the public. And like, if you have that, you know, your best moments, my best moments, Randy's best moments, all fall in this category, especially when there's a great player doing an iconic thing in front of you. Now the problem is if you shift the onus, not only from the player, whether they're great or not, is indistinguishable to the average player because there's no qualifying rounds for, for a stream, right? So you get there by winning a bunch of tournaments in the pro tour. If I play 10 rounds of Magic and Ben Stark plays 10 rounds of Magic on Arena, we might have the same win-loss, right? That's hard hard to parse how much better he is than me for the average player because there were no qualifying rounds for us both to win 7 out of 10, okay? Right. And separately, you're now forcing the players to be their own... Why did he cycle the Rapid Decay? Right, like... You can't do that for yourself. You need Randy, your hacker, to do that for All you. All right, let me tell you something right here.
1: I'm going to tell you the best moment, Pro Tour coverage. Yeah? Very simple. It is the single greatest game call of a game of magic in the history of the game, as far as I'm concerned. It's Paulo Vitor D'Amadorosa versus Yam Wing Chun. It's Paul Chan and
0: Marshall Sutcliffe on nobody, the call. Nobody named that. I would have that on my list. It is. It is,
1: if you want to do homework on how to be... A commentator about magic—that is the match to watch. So it is absolutely pitch perfect. It is informative.
0: It is insightful. So, it is empathic. In my in my opinion, so nobody mentioned that one. I had it on my list anyway, right? Yeah. Uh, and I I mean, You've mentioned this to me before, but I would have had it on my list anyway. But I will point out two things. Most of the great moments involve one, one like probably really good player making a blunder, right? Yeah, which happened in that one. And there's still a Hall of Famer on the other end of that thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that's one thing. And the second thing that I would say, which I think is actually essential to great coverage, absolutely essential, is a sense of uncertainty. And that today, where you have even the Mythic Championships or Pro Tours, the deck lists are known ahead of time, et cetera, or it's just streamers playing archetype decks. If you look at that Pro Tour that Paulo won, then it has the, the thing that you're talking about, which has great players like a Sam Black in the top eight. Sam had. A pretty substandard red deck the red decks were good right but there was such a sense of uncertainty because the format wasn't defined yet right so sam is a great player and an unbelievably great deck designer and he had the third best red deck in that top eight okay he still got there right but like you can say things now like oh wow there's a demonstrable difference in the number of one drops and lands in these two decks right right now like how much difference are we talking about? We're like, all right, everybody has the same Esper deck. Zvi thinks we should have more one ofs. I mean, like... So you're saying the formats are too stale for you? No, I think that, like, there are... There are about four things that make people care about any. Maybe six things total in the entire universe that make people care about any. And there are about six things that make things memorable. And one of the things that's an overlap in both of those categories is a sense of uncertainty or unexpectedness. In Magic, the most important opportunity for uncertainty or unexpectedness has always been in the composition of constructed decks. When Patrick Chapin finally won a Pro Tour, he played one of the only beatdown decks in the top eight. He had 28 lands in his deck and four City of Brass, okay? In a format where everybody else in that room had, had, uh, like... Uh, Corsair Equifix and, and, like, uh, insane blockers, right? He had 3-3 three, three for 2 and 4 City of Brass and 28 land in the beatdown deck in that top 8. There is something there in an unsolved format that is inherently interesting to Magic players, sure. right? Which is like, oh, is this better or not? Is this good or not? Can I replicate this or not? If the answer to all of the questions is, oh, he played the stock red deck, how many uh, how many Legion War bosses versus Tybaltz are in the sideboard is the only question that you have. Like, is there any doubt about the minimum number of lava coils in any of the red deck sideboards? Like, I would assume that three is the bottom and that four is the mode.
1: Zvi was talking about one of the deck lists that come in the segment after this, and he said, and, you know, four lava coils, because you have to. Because you have
0: to, right? Right. Like, But what is even an interesting question, right? Like, so...
1: So it's funny. I mean, just talking about uncertainty, I can tell you that the most depressing time to ever do coverage... ...was when everyone was playing Corsair of Crewfix, and the top card of everyone's deck was revealed.
0: Right? Just going to
1: your uncertainty idea. Right? Because you're like, what could he draw? Well, he's going to draw a forest.
0: (laughs) So, well, there's no... There's no bonfire of the damned moments. Or... Alexander Hain, the miracle man himself, right? Yeah, but that's that's the nature of the miracle. But the whole point of the miracle mechanic was to make top decks exciting, right? It was to make the top of the deck exciting. Were they greater variants? Yes, they weren't prohibitively greater variants. Right. But they were exciting. And you would you would know things. Like sometimes it was right to thought scour your opponents, right? Yeah?
1: Yeah, I love thoughts carrying my it. Listen, we got to cut this off, though. i got to get going. Uh, but, like I said, stay tuned. More magic coming up after this. Mike and I will be back probably in two weeks. I'm going to be away all next week. But uh, thanks for listening to Top 8 Magic. This has been Brian David Marshall, Michael J. Flores, Zvi Maschowitz, coming up next. everybody. A little bonus Magic content here from Top A Magic. I'm sitting here with Magic the Gathering Hall of Famer Zvi Moshiewicz, and we are looking at the decks for Mythic Championship 3 in Las Vegas and sort of uh, doing what everybody does and trying to figure out who's winning, who's got something sweet. Uh, Zvi, what's your take on the field when you looked at uh, how the decks were distributed?
2: Uh, So... They gave us this graphic that made me think briefly there were only six decks in the (laughs) field and panicked that something was gone horribly wrong. And then I realized, no, they're just not doing a very good job of graphics. The field is fine. Um, So there's a lot of Esper Control, but it's still only a quarter of the field. The field is still reasonably diverse, even though also Esper Hero has 13% of the field and those decks overlap on a lot of cards. Um, Who do you like Esper Hero versus Esper Control? Because we're going to see a lot
1: of that this weekend.
2: I think I like Esper Hero on Reflection, given what I've seen from these lists. I think that Hero itself is a card that just puts you at a very strategic disadvantage in terms of how you board, because if you stick this card, suddenly these decks that are dependent almost completely on sticking Planeswalkers and activating abilities has to worry about you generating these tokens, and what do you do about these tokens? I'm not what, I'm going to play Cry of the Cranarium board to guard against this specific card. That's a huge advantage. And... For some reason, all the thief of sanities in the list so far have disappeared. I have all of the good ways to punish someone for playing thief of sanity, even in terms of like anything but saving one mana on the removal spell.
1: So, so we we got about halfway through the list while we were looking before we just realized we should be recording this. Yeah, we, and yeah. we we just had not seen any thief of sanities as of yet.
2: Literally, saw no thief of sanities, and that boggles my mind. In an open decklist tournament, in a closed decklist tournament, I think it's fine to say given how much people are afraid of Thief of Sanity because it's been the card forever, or at least until recently, because apparently I look away for two weeks and it's gone, uh, then they have to bring in their removal slash keep their removal anyway. And then you just say, aha, you don't bring this in. But if you're in an open deck tournament and everybody knows you don't have Thief of Sanity, now they're safe. And they can board like you don't have it. And that strikes me as absurd. And people will for sure say there are better things to do and Teferi makes it not that great or something. But if you hit someone with Thief of Sanity in these matchups, it seems like the game ends. Like reasonably often, effectively. So so for you going into a tournament like this, open deck
1: lists completely changes your approach. I mean, I know we've talked about this a little bit before, but this completely changes your approach to how you're building your sideboards and how you're building your main deck.
2: I, I think you have to assume that You want to choose cards such that your opponents know what you're doing, because they do, and they're going to react intelligently because they will. It's the highest level of magic there is. And by day two, everyone will be very, very familiar with everything that's going on. And so, I want to put cards in my deck that punish my opponent for playing as if I don't have them and that punish my opponent for playing around them. So single copies of cards become much more attractive to me, for example, because I'm making my opponent think about them. And there's nothing better than knowing your opponent has no outs in a situation. And there's few sweeter things than having the one out you do have. While your opponent's like, there's no way he has that. He has one copy in this sideboard. Um, so there's also a situation where, like, when we were playing in the old school tournaments where there was a lot of aggressive scouting, we would often intentionally diversify our sideboards between players. We would go this far, right? So we would talk about, yes, we would talk about what is a card that, if we had it in our sideboard, would change the way people had to board against us if they knew it was there, or would be correct to do so. And so we figured out what it was, and then one of the people who had been winning tournaments lately would put one copy in their board. (laughs) And if they featured, they brought it in, (laughs) if it made any sense, right? Like... Uh, When I was We were playing The Tinker deck um, That Alan Comer Top-aided with Right Um, Suicide Brown I had a Morphling In my sideboard Why did I have A Morphling In my sideboard To freak everybody In the tournament out That we had (laughs) Morphling That was the reason We had it It was like Okay Right It was like Sideboard card 22 Or something If we were just choosing But I was like Okay I volunteer To take this one For the team I think it's kind of A cool idea It's not quite what I think is optimal But that's fine Unfortunately I didn't get a chance to play it um, But yeah, we were absolutely very cognizant of What have we brought in against what matchups In the feature match area What have we done where people were scouting us Who was Which players walked by with notepads with, <laughs> Under what circumstances What do they know and when do they know it So that we could adapt And these players are like, no, what do they know? Everything, when do they know it? Now So you need to adapt to that And... To me, like, yeah, it means like not relying on something that you can figure out, right? And we have situations where knowing exactly what the possibilities are is hugely important. I mean, we've gone from Autumn winning a Pro Tour by leaving in Essence Capture purely for Thief of Sanity and then holding it in their hand just in case this is what's about to happen next. That is why Autumn won, and now suddenly, Thief of Sanity isn't even good enough to be in the board in a open-deck tournament for a few copies. Like I don't think you need to put four. I think a lot of people make this mistake, Let's right? Let's do a Control-F.
1: Let's just see if there are any here.
2: Whoa. Three people have at least one Thief. Uh, Jasper Dominguez has one. Okay. And I think, I think, that's, I think this to me, this is correct, right? Like, you play one or two copies if you think it's not good. Because then people are going to sideboard as if it doesn't exist. I think the second copy is probably still good, but, like, the first copy seems necessary. There's one copy in Manguchi's deck. It's probably the same exact list. Right, I yeah, they,
1: they, they've definitely been practicing together and right. working together.
2: And one copy in Salvato's list, which looks very, very familiar So, well. so, so I mean,
1: Salvato right. and
2: uh, all are all, they are, they're all teammates and right. work together. So. Right, so they all, and again, like before, we intentionally diverged the decks. So we thought to ourselves, if someone had a different idea of how to board, we actively want to encourage someone to sideboard differently, to have a different sideboard or to just board differently in matchups if they believe that. And so like when I walked into uh, the Block Inspector tournament where we were all playing Bant control and I said, I think um, the Bant legend uh, Sistan- Tristani 5 or something in that tournament is actually like this weird mirror breaker slash like anti-control card because it does these things against Aetherling or with Aetherling, actually, because like you just basically, you have these Aetherling mirrors, and it's like, well, if I, if I stick this card, which is actually reasonably hard for these decks to kill in a reasonable fashion after board, then we both have an Aetherling, and I just win, because every time my Aetherling brings back in, I gain five life. <laughs> <laughs> and it turns out you just died to my Aetherling. Well, my your Aetherling just doesn't kill because I'm gaining life every time you damage me. <laughs> and it never actually happened, but it was such a sweet idea. <laughs> and it forces, again, this one card makes them think about, well, I don't have any reason to have an answer to this. Right. That makes any sense.
1: So, so you like these Esper control decks that have access to the, the, the three, Javier, Andrea, and...
2: Uh, I, I, don't, I don't think it's the only thing that matters in lot your them. Esper list, right? I think that like all the details matter. They have a second command the Dreadhorde here, which I'm guessing is a very good thing to have in a ton of mirrors. I like that. Um, they have a Thief of Sanity, which I think is good. So, like, one thing I don't understand is, and this could reflect me not following standard carefully, the lack of Dovin's Vetoes in these lists, going into a tournament full of pros, especially, and games that are going to be fought on a very deep level with these waiting games and these grindy situations. Like, there are lots and lots of matchups where it's two mana, a counter-target spell, this can't be countered. And that seems to me like a ridiculously amazing card in a wide variety of situations. You're going to have a hard time leaving me, leaving, convincing me to leave home with less than three of this. <laughs> um, I'm going to want four of it. You know, I mean, it wouldn't shock me if somebody played four in a at some point, but you know, there are a lot of other things to do, so I do get it. I do understand that you're afraid of Teferi, but you should already be terrified of Teferi. Right. So I'm not sure how much that changes things. I guess you have to play other things instead. But in general they weren't devoting many sideboard cards, it seemed like, to the control situations in general. Uh, this deck seems to be better at that. It has a Search for Canta, a Narset, uh two to Sparks, two to an Ixalan's binding and the Thief of Sanity. Um, and depending on how crazy you fear, obviously there's always, feel is always Lyra. But like there's yeah, it, feel, it definitely feels that way. And again, like I think that sort of things that would just kill people if they didn't prepare for them, where like, you can't afford to sideboard against when you have one copy, are great in these situations because like, one of the things you worry about is like, okay, suppose you, you put um, one you know, uncounterable 7-6 into your deck, right? your sideboard, so that you can bring it in and just randomly stop people. The problem being, some people are gonna like, be ready for it when they shouldn't be, and then it's going to suck. Whereas if you have one copy, now they have a choice. They can either be ready for it and have it suck, but have their deck be much, much worse. Or accept that this card is good. Right? And I love putting my opponents in that situation where you know exactly what's going on in my side and there's nothing good you can do about it. You can only lose less to this play. Um, I also don't understand why everybody has universally agreed that we must play Bell Bellhaunt in our Esper decks. Um, and everyone seems to be playing exactly three. There's actually a few twos. I saw a few twos, but it's always two or three, which seems correct.ly if you're going to do it, right? If you're going to play one, you might as well play a second one to try and actually draw this thing sometimes. And realistically, if you're counting on this against red, you kind of need a third one to make sure you get it. Right. But it seems to be that a four toughness creature in the deck with no creatures in it should be viewed with deep suspicion. How much red is in the field? Not much.
1: Yeah. Single digits.
2: It's the sixth most popular deck, 7.35%. There's uh, five people playing it Four of them challengers. So what I'm reading into this is that, like, of the challengers in the field, it's what you would have expected. Like, it's a really popular deck. It's not the most popular deck, but it's tied for third. And maybe it's a little less popular than you would expect. There are some really experienced pros. Like, you're not going to, like, you yeah, that are... But, like, you saw a lot of Red in the MPL when people were just like, I need to win this individual match really badly, or these two matches against these particular people. Um, so Esper Control,
1: Esper Hero, uh, Is It Phoenix? Yeah. Um, what's it,
2: Bant Ramp? Bant Ramp.
1: Uh, and does, does, would that count like uh, Autumn's deck? Would that, it, it, no? It shows me
2: Hydroid prices, so no. Okay. Uh, so I, I think a lot of white, that- White Aggro yeah, and then yeah. Mono red Aggro.
1: But the thing I really want to talk to you about is what are some of the decks that people are, some of the rogue decks that didn't make the list that
2: have stood out to you? Well, so the one that got us thinking we should start recording is the by far the sweetest deck I've seen in the, so far which yeah. is my, my my dear friend and former teammate Reed Duke yeah. um so he's got eight copies of Nicol Bolas oh he's got Bedevil he's got a copy of Engroff's Rampage and like he gets to play four Discovery Dispersal he gets to play three Negates main deck because he just knows what's going on and doesn't care what you think <laughs> and he's re so he's figured out, I, I can play the cards that answer the specific things that I'm afraid of, even though they are sometimes looking pretty bad. And into that realm, like the one card that I'm worried about is the S3 Cry of the Cranariums in his deck.
1: So what, why do you think those are there? What do you think he was thinking? I mean, you think he was expecting more Esper hero? Like, seems like a fine card against Esper hero. It specifically
2: answers Hero Precinct 1. That's almost certainly a large portion of it. It means that he doesn't have to worry about a runaway hero just ending the game against him. I think that this is one of those cases where Reed is very cognizant of exactly what scenarios he is afraid of, exactly what things he is worried will beat him, and he thinks Cry answers exactly those things in game one. And so he thinks he can afford exactly three dead cards because he has enough natural card advantage in his deck to still grind out the people who he is afraid of. He still has enough selection. He has a lot of very absolute no's, absolute removal's, and he's facing people who don't play that many Dovin's vetoes, who don't play that many dedicated cards for these situations. Um, certainly, I think he has to be pretty worried about the card to command the Dread Horde. Right. Uh, he doesn't have it, which is interesting. I sort of would have considered it. Um, he has Elder Spells only in the sideboard, but he's not that vulnerable to it himself. Like, he only used to have one Planeswalker out at once. Right. Not counting a Narset that has already activated twice. So. This looks like super sweet in a control ish world, which I think is the world we're living in. Um, but yeah, it, it's interesting to see how much the metagame has changed in the last few weeks into this versus what we saw in the MPL tournaments. I also think this reflects that when you are going to play a deck for eight rounds, up to eight rounds, and then up to seven rounds, and then again in the next day, and you have to beat 67 other people many of whom were very good. Somehow, this strikes people as different than I need a deck for this weekend next week against these specific people and a deck that's going to be reliable for me and allow me to make sure I can play my magic. And I think that the pros were suddenly in a situation where, from what I could tell, the people with good records who were trying to get the slots played mono-red way more than normal, and now everyone's avoiding it? Okay. And I don't think that's because the metagame shifted and everybody suddenly decided it became bad, primarily. <laughs> I think that's the philosophy where, like when you were playing Day 3 of Worlds back when there were three separate days or three separate decks and you chose your Day 3 deck at the end of Day 2, people who were in top 8 contention and only needed a certain record would play a deck that they thought of as, air quotes, safe. Right,
1: right. I need to go 3 and 3 or I need to right, go... Right, so to... like
2: I'm playing... Like I'm, I'm playing the last round of Worlds against Bob Marr. We're playing for top... We're playing for top 8. And we're chatting about stuff.
1: So this is what, 2000?
2: Yeah, we're, yeah. he's playing the green-black and I'm playing mono-blue. Okay. Um, in the, I think, masked block, oh, okay. right? So okay. like, it's a great match. Um, comes down to me not drawing land three on the third turn and having to gush. And then being perpetually forced to daze on the next three turns. So I just <laughs> never establish a land, but he can't find land six, so he can't actually play around daze. <laughs> And he just barely finds enough stuff before I can recover and I can't quite win the match. And we were four-part afterwards, he was doing coverage, was like, I was so hoping, for you, hoping you were gonna win because then I could write the headline, Good, you got your good days, you got your bad days. Wow. But sometimes it doesn't work out. But so we were chatting and I'd previously won every pro sideboard game so far because I had a deck that was really well-tuned and that I understood really well and that was really skill intensive. And he had a deck which was a bunch of really powerful cards. And he wasn't familiar with the format in the same way. And he asked a guy to help him. He's like, yeah, I need a deck that can three and three. And then he, in turn, in fact, needed, four, three, he needed to, in fact, go three, two, one. I couldn't draw, so we had to play. Right. He's like, yeah, my deck went four, two. I got what I wanted. His deck played solid, and he played solid, because he's the great one, and it worked out. <laughs> but it turns out that each back is an individual outcome. And so unless you are uncertain about how the format works, you should just pick the best deck anyway. Right. It's just a category error. You're just doing the math completely the wrong way um, to care about structure of the tournament. I understand the whole, like, well, this deck will get mana screwed twice today, so I can't possibly go 7-1 with it. Feels right, but it's actually just wrong. Right? That, you just you divorce that from your mind. So, anyway, I think... Let's talk that, about a different
1: teammate uh, yeah. that you... Uh, Andrew Cuneo. Yeah. Cineo. Someone yeah. else who's been Pantheon. Well, right. Let's talk about his deck, because that was, that was kind of an interesting... Yeah, let's. Um, ...selection.
2: So... We have a guy on our mailing list, uh, Tim McKenna, who <laughs> in between failing to understand the the uh, fundamental goings on in Disney films that his children are watching, managed to grind up to number f- four or five in the mythic standings uh, using a role deck that looks a lot like what Andrew Cunio is playing here. Yeah. And they have some important differences. And um, so I convinced Brian at the, the previous invitational when he was invited at the last minute and he didn't have time to, to do anything basically because he had one day, yeah. which is ridiculous to play the rule deck that I had been running and using to grind uh, into several hundreds mythic uh, at the time. And uh, apparently he drew some mockery for some of my card choices, but I stand by them completely.
1: (laughs) Thrash threat was a card that people just didn't think was very good.
2: And still don't, and they're still wrong. (laughs) But I think it's probably less good now because a bunch of the other cards are better than they were. And so you don't need it as much. Uh, slash, you're sort of doing a slightly different thing that makes it worse. Um, I understand the whole, like, also to Fairy 3 came out, which makes making a 4-4 token really dangerous. Right. Whereas before, it really wasn't that dangerous. Like, right. like there was nothing that punished you for that. So I totally understand the now, it's not good. So anyway, he's playing uh, Gruul midrange. He's got three Domri's Ambushes in the main deck in lieu of the bad removal spells that everyone else plays. And I ha- certainly love not playing Lightning Strike. I have been so unimpressed with Lightning Strike in my experience. It's a way to try and handle Planeswalkers for not just one mana in a way that doesn't really kill them all that often when you care. And it's not that efficient at killing that many creatures either. It's just sort of in the wrong spot. So like, I love that Andrew Cuneo has all four shocks because there are so many places right now where a shock is just exactly the tempo play that you need. Uh, And I love that his other rule of was just don't raise ambush because actually dealing damage to players is just not relevant at all right. compared to anything else. Um, I'm very sad that modern decks have cut Pelt Collector yeah. out of their girl builds. Because to me, the fact that you had Llanowar Elves and Pelt Collector meant that you had eight cards. And if you drew one of them on turn one, your opponent, if he didn't, was playing one of the decks without one drops was behind the eight ball. And if he was playing one of the decks with one drops was not ahead of you. Right, you are at least keeping pace with everybody. Yes. And those, th- those, those pulp collectors regularly became 3-3, three, 4-4, three, four, four, occasionally 5-5. Five, five. And yeah, we've gotten a little bit smaller, right? Because now we're playing, like, Scrag and Hellkite as the big guy, where maybe we were playing Hide Ferox in our particular build, and, right. like, I had Steel Leaf Champion, So it's a little harder. And he has four foreign lieutenants, which definitely is not the best uh, for that. It's an interesting choice. I probably expected a lot more red. Uh, but it's also possible this is actually more about Esper. Right. Because uh, it's a card that eventually goes large. Uh, if you use a removal spell on it, you get this 1-1, one, one, which is potentially relevant to pressuring Planeswalkers in a reasonable fashion. Like, I think to Ferry it, you kill the Ferry with the token. That's kind of right. sweet.
1: Yeah.
2: And that is sweet. It's really good against red. It's always been really good against red. So it's one of these cards that's just never bad, and even though I never felt the need for it, particularly, I. Totally get where he's coming from. He's got uh, a riftar Raptor in the main. Um, this is one of those cases where it's like, you've got a riftar Raptor in the main, you couldn't spare any room in the sideboard for more of them? And I, I totally get it, because it's never bad, right? So like, kind of is a main deck card. It just makes me like, huh? You know, a lot. Um, but there's a lot to like about this list, right? Like, he's got two Domries, which I think is the correct number of dom-rays. Like I, I understand what it's doing, right? You get to fight off of it. You get to sometimes run away with the game with it. You want to accelerate right to five. But I haven't been that impressed by it. It's at most two, I think. I, uh, Tim had three, and I have been just not liking it very much when I've tried it. So I'm gonna, probably going to go back and cut one. Um, you know, uh, I, he fit four Thorn Lieutenants by not playing as many removal spells, and I think that's great. Um, I'm kind of sad about not having Collision Colossus in the main deck. He's got two in the board. Um, this is another example of... I would have one of the Collision Colossus in the board. They see your deck list. Right. right. If you didn't see your deck list, I think this is fine. You know, maybe even just correct at this point, because it's just not what this world's about, even though there's a lot of... I mean, there's a lot of Is It Phoenix out there where this card is really good, because, like, you just kill them, slash, pick off a Crackling Drake for two mana at an instant, those two options are both really good. Occasionally, you pick off a a Phoenix, which isn't great, or you pick off a Kefnet, which is really awesome, because five toughness can be a bitch. Uh,
1: Against the uh, Arclight Phoenix decks, also Andrew's got the sweet tech of the Sentinel Totem in his sideboard.
2: Yes, he had the Sentinel Totem in his board along with uh, five Planeswalkers. He has three Viviana reason and two Chaos Bringer, which I'm somewhat skeptical of, but I get the idea that, like, it's four mana. You get to immediately find, one, you know, 1.7 creatures or whatever it is that <laughs> your expectancy is. I didn't do the math. Uh, Depends on how you board. Yeah, he's got the four lava coils, which you have to have by law. He's got the one Thrashing Brannon on that everyone feels obligated to have. Feels weird to only have one. I think I'd be running multiples, I am just that scared of Experimental Frenzy right now. Sure. It just does I the mean, thing.
1: We were just talking about the fact that Andrew Ellenbogen's got Experimental Frenzy main deck now in his Boros Agro deck, which is the deck he won the Pro Tour with. He had frenzies in the side and they've traditionally been like a sideboard option, but
2: in a field full of Esper, that's gotta be pretty sweet. I I thought, I, actually I'm just like in a field full of Magic decks, that just seems pretty <laughs> sweet. I don't see why this isn't just correct. I think he's just like, well, you know, we could have smoked these all along. We just <laughs> didn't realize we had them. Yeah. <laughs> and like, I don't really understand what was holding him back. Like not him, but like people yeah. in general, now that someone did it, it's like, I guess people were just thought the formats were too fast and now they're slowing down enough that it makes sense. And I, I get that. Right. But it's always, we should have been tempting people. Um,
1: so I have, yeah. I have another question about one of the decks that's not on the top list. Yeah. We've we've seen a million to Town Ravelers in this field, right? I mean, there's just,
2: all of them all
1: of them right this there's just they're everywhere
2: it's everywhere
1: talk to me about autumn Burchett's list because i'm trying to figure out can this deck win in this field because it's a sweet deck it's a simic nexus deck a deck that's kind of faded a little bit like we haven't seen a ton of nexus decks
2: the thing is that autumn knows why this deck doesn't work there is no world in which Autumn is not intimately familiar with all of the reasons why everybody looking at these deck lists and listening to this podcast knows this deck doesn't work and is so last month or even two months ago. Right. right. Like so everyone so realized. assuming
1: they know something about how this deck works that will allow them to fight through that field.
2: I don't think they're just blind. I don't think they forgot. I don't think they expected nobody to play the Fairy 3. I think they have some reason to expect that it's winnable. So we look at this list. They're packing two Blink of an Eye, one Callous Dismissal, and two Blast Zones. And that's it. Right. And their deck just does not function against a Teferi three. right? Uh, Wotor's Reclamation doesn't work, except to set up a second search for Ascanta, which right. is not nothing. Like, that's yeah. still, like, it's, not, it's not inconceivable you can win through a Teferi by just casting the Nexus of Fate during main and then they untap and use the search for Ash Kanta maybe a second time and that's good enough for activate Moral the Genius but they only have three copies of which is interesting as well right because like what is so taxing on their lands that they feel the need with 25 lands in their deck to only have three, t- three tap lands in this field and only two blast zones like it doesn't seem like their mana is that tight um, there is one Nissa so I guess they're trying to maximize the number of forests a little bit for that reason but yeah, I'm also just not I don't like Nyssa here, personally. Like I understand the things it can do. I just don't think you're good enough at doing them. I would much rather that be an additional answer to To, I mean, it guess it kills Teferi in theory, but the theory is probably not minusing very often. Right. Against this deck, so I'd much rather that be another another blink or something like that. For four Root Snare's main. I guess it ends the I guess you need you need another kill card is yeah. maybe the theory, but
1: for Root Snare's main, do you think this is a um Expectation that the field was going to be more aggressive.
2: I don't think you could not do that. I, okay. I, I think that's just how the deck has to work. I okay. don't think they had a choice. Because um, right, because just
1: it doesn't yeah. matter what decks you play, even if they're a mid range deck, yeah. or You still just need to buy the turns necessary Yeah, thing. I think
2: I'd like to see Nyssa be Hydroid Crisis or some other card that can backdoor into a win or a second Kallus dismissal if you're afraid of that just to make sure that I like Kallus dismissal a lot I mean I think it's great it's just a matter of like is it good enough to justify a second copy that you don't actually need to win when you have the Tameo thing going on Uh, but you know I like a lot of the stuff going on in this list uh, otherwise although I've always felt like Force Search for Escanta is appropriate for this strategy just because when you have the searches, your deck is so much better than when your deck doesn't have the searches, and they will kill search on site because they're not idiots. Um, and, because, and I wanna cut Nyssa largely so that I can play more Blast Zones. Sure. Right. And mm-hmm. potentially the fourth from World of Genius to try and win these Esper Mirrors. I mean, not Mirrors, but like these control battles. Right. I feel like if, you, if, you're, if they were packing four Blast Zones, this seems like a very reasonable, you can't just sit here and grind me a little bit because I will end up blow up to Fairy 3 untap win right or even like i guess part of the plans are something like okay you're, you're depending on the three okay is it okay if i have a wilderness Reclamation okay i'm gonna float a bunch of mana i can't cast spells i can put some counters on the blast zone before i untap then i can untap and now i can kill the blast now i can use the blast zone and now i can cast my nexus <laughs> that's not unreasonable right but i just it just doesn't feel like there's enough copies of the key cards here and then the, the sideboard doesn't seem like it acknowledges the problem, right? Like the sideboard is Anissa, three oozes, four thorn lieutenants, which are clearly, like so the thorn four, four, four lieutenants are clearly for, you know, other decks. They're not what your plan is there. Burn. <laughs> right, they're not bringing this in against control unless they are next level that I can't understand. Um, three biogenic oozes, which like are a reasonable plan B, but like you really can't have them in your sideboard and they know that that's what your plan is and you make that your plan it's still good to put them in your sideboard anyway and probably bring them in to put the fork on the situation, right? Where you, right. like, they have to worry about you suddenly spiking this and running away with the game while they're not looking, which is important. Um, the second Nyssa, which again, like, it's fine. Like, it's certainly a reasonable thing to have in control matchups. And, like, in, two gets two pierces and three Narsets, which is like, okay, I'm going to play the control battle more. But again, I feel like if you want to play the control battle more, you have to be able to get out from under Teferi. And I don't see this deck question out from under Teferi. So I am... I mean, it's possible Autumn's posted an article that explains all of it. We just haven't looked. Maybe we should look. <laughs> um, Check Star City, where Autumn writes. Uh, no, Autumn's keeping quiet. As I would, to be fair. I would <laughs> keep very, very quiet. I'd be hunting rabbits. Uh, so I get it. I like, I like this insight into uh, mm-hmm.
1: the, the press, because this is what you would be doing if you were playing in the event, right? You'd be like, huh, I wonder if Autumn posted an article. <laughs> and you would just be gleaning it for whatever information except did. that i
2: wouldn't have waited this long to chat. <laughs> yeah, i would course. have already scanned channel fireball star city the magic main site everything else i can think of and been like where is any of these people possibly doing any things i mean look i would i would probably have a team of volunteers watching all of the streams and taking very good notes yeah
1: So (laughs) not sure when when this is going to go up, if this is going to get up on day one or over the weekend, but just breaking the field down to Esperdex, either Control or Hero, or the field, what are you expecting on Sunday, looking at this? uh,
2: Esperdex are 37.2% of the field, so on average you'd expect one or two. Um, From what I've seen, the Esper Control decks seem to have reasonable builds. They're facing a variety of matchups. They're very strong. Um, Usually the most popular decks overperform in these situations. The pros know what they're doing. Uh, Esper Control and Esper Hero are both disproportionately in the hands of the MPL. They both have like, so six MPL players are playing Esper Hero versus three challengers. And we have, I believe 12 MPL members, if I counted right, against five challengers in Esper Control. Uh, including some of the most prepared people who are preparing very carefully in teams, as opposed to say, mono red aggro, where we see one MPL member and four challengers. Because again, the MPL players don't want to be doing this. In the, it's possible the other dynamic is just in a world where there are challengers, they don't want to play mono red. In a world where everybody is good, and you know that all of your opponents are Brad Nelson and Seth Manfield and so on, you know, okay, I guess I can just play mono red because you know. It's not too good for Paolo or Will Jensen or...
1: Four, five, five world champions in the field?
2: Something... At least, maybe more? I mean, Kai's in. Yeah, I'm counting Kai. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'd be less afraid of Kai, obviously, just because he's so out of practice. Right, playing Esper Hero. Yeah, I mean, and and who knows if he even knows how Arita works. He might be figuring (laughs) that out during round one.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Very funny. All right, so... uh, (laughs) All right, well, I know I'll be watching all weekend. I'm sure you'll be watching all weekend. And uh, we'll see how this plays out. But that was a a quick look at some of the decks from uh, Mythic Championship 3 with Brandon Marshall and Zvi Marshall Thanks for listening.